This podcast is brought to you by jewishpodcasts.org. Start your very own podcast today at jewishpodcasts.org. 5783 This area, that was the Transjordan area on the east side of the Jordan River, the Amim used to live there. They're a great and awesome nation like giants. The Rephaim considered them to be Anakim, meaning the Rephaim themselves considered the Amim to be giants. And the Moavim, Yikulahem Amim. They called them Amim. I guess because they were super afraid of them, so that's that. So we have these guys. They're known as the Amim. They're known as, I guess, whatever, Anakim. They're known as giants. Somehow they might be connected to the Rephaim. But what exactly are we talking about over here? And what exactly is Moshe Rabbeinu telling Kalayasol? So Hirsch says that all these psukim were interjected. They were thrown in. Oh, I have been a long time. But interjected by Moshe Rabbeinu as an explanation. It's not part of his whole speech. He was never like a whole thing that was trying to go through over here. These words were said to raise the courage of the people. The people wanted to feel courageous. They wanted to feel like something awesome was going on for them. Like they could do something. They could take over. So when they heard about the giants that used to live there and the people that took it over and were able to knock them down, they said, well, if that happened to them, then we can do it as well. That's the idea behind it and that's the purpose, says Reverse, of this entire Pasuk. But there's a lot going on here, so let's go into the words themselves. Rashi holds that Anakim, Rephaim, and Amim are all the exact same person. It's the same nation. They're just called different names based on what they needed. So why? They were giants, and that's the word Anak. The word Anak means it's sort of like they're making a hole in the sun. They stand up and they block the sun from a person, so therefore that's considered like an Anak, almost like a necklace that blocks the person from being whatever. There's something that blocks something from the other. That's going to be the word Anak. That's the word whatever it is Anak also stands for the neck they stood up straight and that's why they were called Anakim anyone who saw them became weakened and that's why they're called Rifa'im Rafu Yadayim means your hands become weak from not being able to work not being able to do whatever it is so Rifa'im was named because you saw them and you became weak in the knees and you were like oh my gosh these people are going to kill me that's the word Rifa'im and they were fearsome people were afraid when they saw them says Rashi that's why they're called Amim but it's all referring to the same nation. Amim, Rephaim, and Anakim are all the same. They all come together. The Ammonim that are mentioned in Pasukhaf, the Ammonim also took over some land from the Rephaim. They call them Zamzumim. And again, the word Zamzum is the same idea. It connotes fear, that they were afraid. There's somebody that you looked at and you were afraid. You knew that something was going to happen over here. This was a race of giants, we'll talk about soon, that had been alive for a very, very long time, possibly descendants of Og, maybe related to Sihon, but they lived in this area, and eventually they were taken over by the Moavim, who were not a particularly fierce nation, not a particularly strong nation, but people that had the ability to fight. The Moavim took them over, and they were gone. Reverse says the word Rafa means to be dying or weakening. That's where Rafa. So it's not referring to the people looking at them. He says the word Rafa really refers to the nation themselves. This was a dying race. These were people who were dying out. Nothing good was going with them. And even though they were giants and strong and big, I guess they didn't have a lot of kids. 
So eventually, they died out. Eventually, there weren't enough of them. So it was easy for the Moab to come in and take over the entire land. Because yes, each person individually was very strong. But as anybody who's read Gulliver's Travels knows, right? As soon as you have, what were they called? The Lily people? Or is that the little guys? Lilliputians. But those are small guys, right? What were the big guys called? I forgot what the big guys were called. Either way, regardless, maybe they were just giants. But either way, but when he went up against him, we know that enough people can take down a giant. Oh, because the Lilliputians took down him, Gulliver. That's right. Okay, so we know that they can take down once you go and you're able to take over. So either way, that's the idea the Rapper says. They were weakening the dying race. That's why they're called Rephaim. The Nitziv says something totally opposite, and I never would have thought of this. Yishmael is called Pere Adam, like a wild animal of a human being. That's what Yishmael was. He was a wild creature that went around stealing from people, grabbing things from people, this terrible, terrible person. The word Rifal, Reish Fe Aleph, is the same as Pere, Pe Reish Aleph, in that they would, would go around and act like wild animals. They're animalistic. They had no Derek Eretz whatsoever. These people, whether they were actual giants or not, doesn't make a difference. The Nativ says they were mulish, so to speak. That's the idea of what they were. The Rathon means somebody who doesn't have any old malchus on them. There was no kingship by them. They had no king. They had no people that they looked up to. They were just a bunch of people who were able to fight together because they had a common goal, but they really didn't consider anybody their king. And that's why Moshe Rabbeinu said they were the hardest nation to take down. Because look, when you have a big king and the king is taken down in the middle of a fight, you take down the king, the whole nation goes down. You take down the general, the whole nation. Everybody runs away. They don't know what to do anymore because they all listen to the general. They all listen to the king. And if the king and the general are gone, what are you going to do? This nation, you knock down one, the other guy's like, I was always king in the first place. So the next guy takes over. You knock down that guy, then another guy gets up and says, I'm the, I'm the, I was always the king. And everybody starts taking over, so they kept fighting and fighting and fighting, and yet still the Moabim took them down. They were a race of unbelievably difficult to, co- to capture people, unbelievably difficult to conquer people, a bunch of paradam, wild animals of human beings, and nonetheless, the Moabim were able to destroy them completely. The Moabim were so scared of them, I guess, because, I mean, unless you actually fight them and you get your army to go, but these probably, these people had no morals. So they'd go into a town, do the worst things in the world, and they treated them as, oh my gosh, these people are just animals. That's what they called them. They called them these refaim, animal people, people that don't deserve to be alive. And that's what it was. Nevertheless, eventually the Moabim defeated them, even though they were crazy strong, and they took them over. That's the idea behind this puzzle and why they're called refaim themselves. The Bechor Shor goes in a completely different direction. This is a Baal Tosvos from the 13th century. He says, no, not like the Nitziv, obviously the Nitziv was six centuries later, who says that they were wild animals of people. No. The Rephaim were extremely brilliant people. They had Chachamim, wise men, who told them what to do. They always went to them. They asked them for advice. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? And the advisors would always tell them everything they needed to know. And when they went to war, they had strategies. They had all these strategies and plans and everything like that. And they always looked up things and tried their very hardest to make sure that they were doing things in the smartest, most brilliant way. And yet they still lost. Says the Bechor Shor, they had Chachamim, they were powerful, but when they decided to rebel against the Kaddish Baruch Hu, Hashem sent them a nation that was not a smart nation. The Moabim were not necessarily known for their brilliance. Not a strong nation. The Moabim weren't known for their strength. And nonetheless, the Moabim were able to take them over and destroy the land, even though they had the brilliant people, they had the smartest people. They were amazed at their defeat. 
They couldn't understand it. How could we have lost? We're the smartest people out there. But when a Kaddish Baruch wants somebody to lose, they're going to lose. All of that is in the definition of their names, where they got those names from, each one, one after the other. Targum Yonason says something surprising, though. We've said giants, and we use the word giants. But Targum Yonason, Yonason Meduzil says, in Parshish Shlach, it's not even over here, in Parshish Shlach, that these people who are giants had horrible character traits. He doesn't go into their size as being these massive guys. He says they just have horrible character traits, very similar to the Nitziv, calling them para-adam, these mulish people, animalistic people. He says they're people that are terrible guys. Parish Yonason, the Targum of Targum Yonason, says an explanation to this. He says when describing these people and saying what they are, it can't be referring to actual giants. Because somewhere the Pusik would say that they're huge. There's no description. Like, if I wanted to tell you what a giraffe was, what would I tell you? You'd be like, oh, yellow animal. It's got split hooves. Uh, it's got, you know, like really weird horns coming out. You'd say it's got a big neck. If you don't describe a giraffe with a really long neck, you're either blind or you have no idea what a giraffe is. It's the first thing you describe a giraffe as. If these people are these huge, strong giants and they're massive giants, forget about explaining it from the name. Just say they were giants. You would say that about these people. And if it doesn't say that about them, it doesn't say how tall they were, how big they were, how strong they were, then clearly that's not what they were. So says Paris Yonason, when we describe them as giants, it can't be physical, it would say that. So it must be that they're giants in a different way. They're giants of Tuma. They're giants in terrible, terrible Midos. That if you wanted to find the biggest Balgaiva, it's this guy. You wanted to find the biggest Balkas, an angry person, it's that guy. That's what these guys were like. And one after the other, they were just horrible. And it's possible that that's what the Maraglam were saying about them. Not that they're super strong and tall and whatever. It's that they have such horrible Midos, this land must lend its abilities to these guys to have these horrible mitos. It must be that this land causes people to have these horrible character traits, so we don't want to go into Eretz Canaan, said the Maraglan, because look at these guys. They were raised, born and raised here, and they're terrible. This is not a good land to go into. That was the idea of what they were saying. Medrash Tankum and Parshish Balak actually says that. There are certain lands that allow people to be a certain way. Like, for example, over there in Balak, the land of Shittim was well known for Znus. Why? It was in the water, says the Medrash. You drank the water and it helped your Yetzirah grow. You wanted to do something wrong. You wanted to do something bad. I don't know, the fluoride, something like that, that allowed you to be a certain way, and it just made you the person that you are. There are certain foods, says the Medjish Tankuma, that have that ability. That's what they thought about Eretz Yisrael. Not that they were actual giants, but rather giants of Tumo. Now, on the other hand, Alina Lashabach, Rabbi Yitzhak Zilberstein says, you go on the other hand, you look at our giants. <laughs> look at the people that we consider to be giants in Kalah Yisrael. The Chavetz Chaim was probably 4 foot 11. Maybe. If he was 4 foot 11, I'd be a little bit surprised. Ramosha Feinstein was tiny. Absolutely tiny. Now, the Chazanish, they say was small. I don't know. I never saw the Chazanish. I was by Rav Yashiv, and I felt like I was towering over him. Now, granted, he was 90 and older at the time. So, yes, it could be that he was taller before he turned the age of 90. But I remember towering over him. I'm not that tall. I'm not that much bigger. Rav Leib Steinman, tiny. Each one, again, he was like 140. So I have absolutely no idea. But our Gedolim aren't Gedolim. They're just great people. And we understand that. 
So he gives an example, right, one after the other of these of, of, of a gadol that's just a gadol by Yisrael. The Chassam Sofer, is, he was a prolific writer, and he never had time for anything. He gave shir all morning long and all afternoon long. He had a massive yeshiva, the biggest yeshiva in Europe at the time in Pressburg, and a huge town that he was the rub of the town dealing with everything there. He was on the Hungarian parliament and somehow found the time to write a five-volume set on Chumash, a two-volume set on Chumash called Taurus Moshe, a three-volume set on Shas, a three-volume set in the Shulchan Aruch, his drushos he used to write down all the time, and well over 5,000, probably more, Shilas Vichuvos that he was able to put together. That, it, it's impossible. He couldn't have had the time. So in his biography, it says, how did he write back to those people who wrote to him? And he got letters every single day. His sons would read to him while he was eating dinner. They would read the Shilas to him while he was eating dinner. He'd think about it during dinner. And after dinner, he would spend one hour writing. According to one biography, I don't know if this is true, he would write two chuvos at once. He would write, like, his copy and the copy for the person, you know, one to send back. And he'd write it both with ambidextrous hands. I can't believe that. I mean, I wouldn't put it past people, but it just doesn't sound right. It sounds crazy. But if he was able to write both at the same time, remember, no copy machines back then, and he had to keep a copy for himself. Either way, regardless, I don't know why he couldn't get one of his kids to do that, but they were probably busy. So he, he would write that back, and he would put these songs in one of his chuvos. It's an orachim, shalos chuvos orachim, at the end of chuva, reish pei, um, kuf pei, I'm sorry. At the end of chuva, kuf pei, he says, I wrote all of this without my svarim. Because my wife just gave birth to a baby, and she's in the sparring room sleeping, and I don't want to go in and disturb her. So I'm not going to check. So somebody else has to check this for me. Right? That's what he wrote. He wrote that inside there. Okay, he, that's crazy. Now, obviously, right, nobody wants to disturb the wife. But if you felt that something was super important, you'd be like, just knock, knock, like, is everything okay? I just got to quickly check something and then go back outside. But a guddle be a swall, it happens to be the other way, the Chassam Sofer was pretty big. But a guddle be a swall is somebody who understands this is what you do and this is what you don't do. That's the concept. That's what a guddle be a swall is, as opposed to the Gdolim of other nations. When it comes to bad meadows, this is somebody you should have absolutely great meadows. That's the idea behind it. Now, did these giants really exist? If they were actually giants, and I realize with this target zone, you don't have to say it that way, but did they actually exist? I've talked about this before. And I've actually given a Shavuot shear on this, like a five and a half hour shear on the concept of giants and what happened with them and why we don't seem to have stuff like that today. And I'll just say the following. It is physically impossible with our current body structure to be over 10 feet tall and to live a normal life. It's impossible. Our hearts, the way that they are, cannot pump blood that far into one's fingers and toes. You can even buy regular basketball players that are seven feet, seven foot five, right? They always run into problems with their feet and with their hands because a heart on a seven foot player, obviously with a wingspan of like 140 feet, right? It just doesn't go well to the extremities, to the extremes, all the way out to the fingers and to the toes. That's why, I don't know if you guys remember Joachim Noah from the Bulls. He had plantar fasciitis like every other day because that's what happens. The blood flow didn't go through the way that it possibly should have, the way that it could have, and his heart wasn't there. It wasn't pumping properly. He wasn't able to do it. So what can you do? I mean, you could have, if you had your heart double in size, then you could work. Like if a person was six feet tall and he wanted to, we wanted to have a 12 foot tall person, well then you would have to double the heart in order to make that work. But remember, the heart is a cube. 
it's not 2D, it's not two-dimensional, it's three-dimensional. If you want to square a three-dimensional object, you need to quarter it. You need to go four times that size. So you'd need a heart, if you wanted to have a guy that's six feet to 12 feet tall, right? Then you'd need a heart that's four times as big. Now that's possible, but that means you would not have a normal human being because a four times as large human heart, which is basically a giraffe heart, cannot fit inside a normal human being. You'd have to have a weirdly shaped human being, like Shaq. And then you don't have any problems with blood flow all over because he's literally a tank. Yeah, if you're Juggernaut from the old Marvel comics, then of course you could survive and you're perfectly fine because your heart is massive. But a normal human being, the way we are, it's impossible. Now, again, you never put anything past the Kaddish Baruch Hu. Obviously, the Kaddish Baruch Hu can do anything he wants, and it's not a problem whatsoever. I'm just saying, with the current structure, the physical structure that we have, it's absolutely impossible to have. The tallest person that we have today, there is such stuff, like pituitary gigantism, Marfan syndrome, unicroid tallness. you got to I apologize if I'm not pronouncing it correctly, okay? Soto syndrome and acromegaly, acromegaly, I don't know what it is, are all conditions that cause the people to grow past the human norm. Sultan Kusan, he was not a sultan, he's just a random guy from Turkey, is the tallest guy. I think he's alive today. Somebody would have to check that up. He's eight feet three inches tall. That's the tallest man that lives today. He doesn't live an awesome life. He can't move in a normal fashion. Obviously, he can't fit on most airline seats, right? It's very difficult for him. So because he's the Guinness Book of World Records record holder, so they can fly him from place to place and he has special things and whatever it is. But even like business class seats don't do him well because he doesn't fit into those seats. Nothing fits well for him. Obviously, it's a problem. The tallest person who ever lived is an Illinois resident, Southern Illinois, Robert Wadlow, an eight-foot 11 inches and three quarters or two thirds. I can't remember which one it is exactly, but Robert Wadlow. He died at the age of 22 from a foot infection. From a foot infection. He couldn't live past that amount. And obviously, we're not going to get there anymore. Now, whenever somebody has this gigantism or, you know, whatever it is, they can fix it. The doctors know what to do. They know how to take out the pituitary gland or make sure that the guy doesn't grow that much larger than what he's supposed to be. So we're not going to really have anybody like Robert Wadlow ever again, unless it's in somewhere where there are absolutely no doctors and nobody catches it. And all of a sudden, we see a, like, nine-foot guy. But I guarantee we won't because he's not going to live long enough for that to happen. So how can the Pesukim talk about these giants? Where do we get these giants from? Oh, Goliath, etc. Tiferes Yonason says that there's a Chazal, there's a hint from Chazal from the word Anakim. Anakim is that, remember, they blocked the sun. So says Tiferes Yonason, what that really means in Kabbalah is that if you use certain kochos, you will be able to use the powers of the sun and daven or, I don't know, use something at a certain time of the mazalos and you can have a child that's going to be an absolute giant. It's obviously through Kishuf, and that's something, says Rabbi and Adshitz, that we have no shaykhs to today. No longer can that happen because we don't have any connection to that magic, and therefore we can't take advantage of the power, that shefa, that influence that comes into the world. We're never going to see these types of giants ever again. That's a Rabbi Yonason. So could they have existed? Yes, they could have. Is it there? Before you ask Shalom, before you get to that, just very quickly, I've always thought that the giants that existed in Tanakh, like, for example, Og or Goliath. Goliath is said to be six Amos tall. That's either nine feet or 12 feet tall. I don't know if Goliath held like the Chazanish or not, but, right? but it's either nine to 12 feet. If the, these people, and this is not an exaggeration, if Og is not an exaggeration, then it's possible that they were freaks of nature. How did Goliath fall from just a slingshot of David Melech? How did that happen? Well, have you ever seen Andre the Giant fight against Hulk Hogan? 
Andre the Giant was huge, massive. I have no idea how big the guy was, but he was absolutely massive. He was an old wrestler in the 80s and the 90s, right? He was an old guy, right? If you ever saw him, is he Jewish? Is he really? All of us, show him then. Oh. Did he marry you? Oh, Baruch Hashem. So uh, that's something, that, that's the record we wanted. <laughs> right, he was. He was very much. But it was clear. You All you had to do is knock him out. If you ever played the old Nintendo game and the wrestling game and the other guy was Andre the Giant, it was super easy to just get under his legs and then you knocked him down every single time. Right? That's what you're supposed to do. I always felt that Goliath was a freak of nature and massive, but he had no structure. That's why he had to have armor all over him because he couldn't fight a war. That's why he was asking to fight one-on-one because he couldn't fight in a normal battle. He couldn't run. He couldn't go anywhere. He very slowly went up to Dubinamel, but he had a massive reach. So if he reached you with his sword and you couldn't get anywhere, right? there was nothing you could do. You couldn't shoot arrows at him because he had all the armor on him. He was just that big and strong that if he reached you, you would be dead. But if somehow you got him beforehand, like David Melech with the slingshot knocking him down, once he's down, he can't get up. He's too big. I always thought that way. I always thought Goliath looked kind of like a Tyrannosaurus Rex. I don't want to give you my proofs right now, but you know, like, I, I've never, like, I, obviously, for those who believe in, uh, in what's called an evolution, yeah, totally makes sense to have little arms like these. That's how every dinosaur would want to have. Every dinosaur would want to have really, really nice little arms over here. I always thought that Og was a freak. Massive legs, massive body, tiny little arms. I have a bit of a proof to that from this week's Parsha, from the size of his crib, that it was nine amos tall. Guys, is your bed nine times, <laughs> I should say three times your body? I'm three amos tall, six feet tall, right? Is your bed three times your length? No. Who in the world would have a bed that is three times their length, nine amos? How does that make any sense? It must be that he had smaller arms than most. It could be that it's the Amma of regular human beings and he was really big, etc. But it sounds like it's Amos Shel Og, at least according to some of the Rishonim, which means he was a Tyrannosaurus Rex. You thought they were dinosaurs. They weren't dinosaurs. It was Og's relatives. It was all Og's relatives. There weren't any lizards. There weren't lizard thunder lizard kings, right? That wasn't what it was. It was just a great big Og. It was like, come here, you. <laughs> that was that. But if he stepped on you, then it was horrible. I know. How did he lift up a mountain with tiny little arms? Is that what you're going to ask me? I knew you would ask me that. How are you going to lift it up? I don't know. Like this. I could care less. <laughs> like, that would be enough. I'm sorry, what? Right, if it sticks parses, that would be unbelievably hard. But even if he had regular arms, you can't lift up a mountain. So I'm not bothered by that question. Clearly there's something else going on over there. So I, I really feel that if he's a freak, then it's not even a question in the first place. Yeah, Shlomo, what are you going to ask? Uh, two things. First of all, uh, let me just say this about him specifically, not the nation of Anakim, because they were a whole nation, so you would say that each one of them was just like, unless they all had this Freakish. problem. Freakish, yeah. Genetics. So this, so this Genetics, yeah. I would assume that everybody genetically was messed up. They were all genetically messed up, and that's why they could be taken down. They were all messed up. Every single one had that problem. They were born in a certain height, certain weight, whatever it was, and every single one, and they kept going until they literally destroyed themselves. Yeah. Oh, wait. So, yeah? It's very difficult. Again, with Moshe Rabbeinu himself, if he's 10 almost tall, is that what you're referring to? Right? The Gemara and Again, if you're dealing with shots, 
then it's very difficult to understand, right? You have, obviously, the Gemara Brachos, which may be taken allegorically, because if Og is allegorical, lifting up the mountain, then Moshe Rabbeinu would be allegorical, jumping up 30 Amos, etc. Plus, again, I would assume that Moshe Rabbeinu is mostly white, and jumping 10 Amos for a white guy is almost impossible. But again, I don't put anything past the Kaddish Baruch, we can make white people jump. It's just very unlikely in that way. I just, I don't know. But, Right, each one right, with Rabba Babarachana and Rabba Barachana reaching up and be able to go to the leg. And you have Avner, the story of Avner with Shalom Melech and with Dovin Melech who's able to go underneath his leg. I don't know. It sounds like each one of these can be taken allegorically and don't have to be taken literally. Uh, there is a Gemara, there's two Gemaras about Moshe Rabbeinu that show that he's ten almost tall and it's impossible. Psachim, uh, yeah, the Mishkan, setting up the Mishkan in Shabbos, Sadi Beis or something like that, Shabbos, Sadi Beis, and there's another one that mentions that maybe in Menachos, Bechoros, I forgot what it is, where it seems to be taking Moshe Rabbeinu's ten almost tall is shot, and it's giving a cheshben according to that, and I can't explain it. In that way, I just have to say, okay, maybe he was ten almost tall. I can't, I, I'm not going to go against that, but if this could be taken allegorically, if it's supposed to be taken allegorically, then there's another idea, and that's what the Maral says, that ten refers to the amount of perfection of a human being. If you're ten, then you're perfect, and Moshe Rabbeinu was a 10. He was an absolute 10. And therefore, he had all the meadows that a person could want, and that's that, which I totally understand. He was a giant of a Talmud Chacham. That totally makes sense within the idea that Talmud Yonason is trying to say. Dave, yeah. yeah. So what about the and the Same thing. Same thing. It would be the exact same thing. Giants of Tuma. Terrible people. The worst meadows in the world. Maybe larger in size, but crazy in size? I don't know. So what was the Yes, but that's a different story. You know, when Hakadosh Baruch Hu, when a Kaddish Baruch Hu sends down a malach in a human form, then clearly there's a human form that is to fit that malach. What exactly did that mean? Where did it go? You know, whatever. Targum Yunusin cannot argue on straight up psukim. He's got. He has to explain those psukim within the realm of this and say that okay, therefore it has to be that way. But again, I'm not putting anything past giants. It's very possible there were massive giants out there, and they were. And Og was 300 feet tall. I, I have nothing, no problem with that. And when somebody comes up to me, they'll be like, how could you believe such a thing? I'll be like, I, I don't care. <laughs> like, I'll go up to Shemayim after 120. I'll be like, Hashem, was he really 300 feet tall? He's like, yep. And I'll be like, okay, <laughs> that's fine. I'm not going to argue on that. I have absolutely no problem with it. Do I find it hard to understand based on where we are today in 2023? Yeah, because we're idiots. So, of course, I don't understand it whatsoever. But... I'm not worried about that. That doesn't bother me. Abishol found the bones. You know what I'm saying? Abishol found the bones of oak and he ran through them like chasing after a deer. That doesn't bother me. I'm not bothered. I'm, not, I'm really not bothered. It doesn't bother me. Either a Kurdish Barkle doesn't want us to find them yet, right? I, they could be underneath Yushalayim. You know what I'm saying? They could be underneath cities. Like, I, I, paleontologists can go, can go, can't go everywhere. And usually cities are built on top of other cities. So could they be there? Are there burial places for massive giants that we're totally missing? Possibly. Or, I, I, again, this is like totally radical, but like, we're positive dinosaur bones or dinosaurs. <laughs> we're, we're positive. Like, I don't know anything whatsoever. And I'm sure, like, some paleontologist is going to call me up and be like, what are you talking about? I, I don't care. Like, I don't, I, I moms don't care. But we're positive. Could it be that a Kaddish Baruch is going to be like, oh, gosh, just rearrange those bones. This is Og. And you're like, it's not Sue. <laughs> it's Og. Oh, my gosh. It's the total, di- I, I don't know. I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> and he's going to be like, and you missed the, the, you missed the arms. The arm was right there. <laughs> <laughs> and it's kind of like those were just the hands at the end of these massive, massive arms. Yes, Shalom, one more time. So if, if that's true, I mean, the size differential is really just from what the Rabbi said about being, or the Mullim, um, yeah. 
parent. So it just seems like to have such a size, they're going to say something that look like ants. It must have been so much, if we take it literally, then it seems like they're going to change their assignment, whatever it was. Again, same thing. Either that whole thing, again, I feel like I'm an ant when I stand next to Shaq. Am I momish an ant? I've never sat, stood next to Shaq. But have you ever seen that picture of Shaq, Charles Barkley, and The Rock, uh, Dwayne Johnson? You ever see that picture? Like, I, Dwayne Johnson is supposed to be this huge guy. He looks like a tiny little girl <laughs> like, in comparison to these two massive giants. Right? I, I, I hear it. I can definitely hear it. I can definitely hear standing next to a guy who's like six foot eight and being like, I feel like an ant. I feel like I, like an ant right now. Again, but I'm not saying he was. I'm not saying they weren't that tall. I'm just saying it's a possibility to be able to to say it that way. Now, the next part I'm going to skip completely over here is a big difference between Rashi, the Ramban, the Gor Arye, Rabbi Chiel, Michael Feinstein. They all talk about this idea, this Machlokis Rashi Ramban about what's going on and conquering the seven nations and whether or not these seven nations are there. I'm going to skip all the way over all the way to page three. The Rabbinical says that Moab not only called them Amen, but were very scared of them to the point where they couldn't stand before them. That every time they stood, their knees started knocking. There's a vav missing from the Moabim in their name here. It's not mem vav aleph bays. It's mem aleph bays yod mem because of that fear. Because whenever you see a letter missing, that means they're missing something. They themselves are lacking in something great. So that's the Moabim. Sforno adds that their defeat at the hands of Moab was nothing short of miraculous. Sort of like what we set up above, considering how afraid they were of the people. They were huge warriors that inspired fear in anyone that saw them. That was the Amen themselves. Nonetheless, Moab, a not a nation that was not not tried and tested in war, they never did anything, they took them over to the point where none of these giants survived and they were completely gone. Maybe it was through the curse of Bilaam, that's what the Medrash seems to say, but somehow something happened, that's Hashem took them over, etc. But the Shach gives a totally different reason for what happened over here. He says, they had a Chazaka on this land, the Moavim, because they tried so hard to get it. And therefore it wouldn't be right for B'nai Yisrael to take away the Moabi land for them, from them. One might ask, why can't we fight against Moab? Really? Because Lot did a couple things for us, and all of a sudden we can't take away their land? Is that, that, is that sensible? Does that make any sense to anyone? Like, yeah, Lot and Avram like, hung out a little bit, and Lot didn't tell on him when Sarimena was in Mitzrayim. And for that, we don't get to fight his descendants ever until Mashiach? Where did that come from? And it could be that this Pasuk is a different hint and Shach sort of says it that way. The Moabim tried really hard. They put all of their efforts in it. Possibly they even daven to Hashem and asked Hashem to put the Amim, the Zamzumim, the Rephaim, the Anakim into their hands. And Hashem allowed them to conquer it. It's not right to go take it away from those people after they already conquered it and took over and worked that hard to be able to give it. Not yet. There wasn't a guarantee that we wouldn't take it over, but for now, they get to deserve, they deserve it for what they did. Which is a crazy line, but that's how the Shach says it. Then he says, the Rephaim, also, he calls them Amen, because they did something called Shinoi Hashem, they changed their names, and then took over their land, which is Shinoi Rishus. We know in Hilchos Kinyanim, says the Shach, that when someone does a Shinoi Hashem and a Shinoi Rishus, you steal something, cause it to change its name without doing a Shinoi Maisa, without changing the object, but you, it's now a new name, and you give it to someone else, that person has now acquired the item and does not have to return the item, he just has to give money back. 
for the item itself. It's possible, even though the Rephaim were one of the seven nations promised to B'nai Yisrael, they should have, B'nai Yisrael should have the rights to land, Moab came and did a Shinoi Hashem and a Shinoi Rishus and took over that land and therefore we can't take it away from Moab, which is a super interesting bit of Hilchos Kinyanim to be able to get down over here. There's nine Torah, it says B'nai Yisrael were questioning and they were looking at Moshe Rabbeinu and they're like, you know, this doesn't make any sense to us. You're saying that God is God and he can do anything. You're saying that we're going to have to go into Eretz Canaan and fight to take over that land. Why would we have to fight? Why wouldn't that Kodesh Baruch just make everyone die? Or everyone just think one day, why does it even have to be through war? Everybody should get up one day and just be like, I don't want to be here anymore. And just walk out. And then we'll be able to go into Eretz Canaan and we'll just take over the entire land. Why in the world are we fighting? And B'nai Yisrael had that question of Moshe, and this doesn't make any sense to us. Why is that going on? It seems like, they said, that Hashem had kicked out the Chori in favor of the B'nai Esav, as well as the Rephaim that were kicked out because of the Moab and the Ammonim. So why, we, why can't we do that as well? These psukim seem to say that that's not what happened. Never does a Kaddish Baruch Hu force a nation out of their land. The Bnei Chori didn't get up and leave. The, the people of Esav took over the land from the Bnei Chori. It's not like the Rephaim got up and left. It's that these people fought the Rephaim and took them out. HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, there are certain things that I will do to help you. I'm going to make sure you don't die in a war like this. But there is a point of Mesiris Nefesh that I need you to do. It's almost like a little bit of Yisurus from you. You have to do something and then I will follow suit. I'm not going to give you everything for free. That's not what this world is. Olam Haba is like that. But in Olam Haza, you have to work for it. And that's what happened by these guys. That's what happened to those guys. That happened to all these people. Don't think that I did it for free. Don't think that they just walked in and everybody just fell down in front of them. Do your do your hishkadlis. Do what you need to do and then you'll see the nations fall in front of you. That's the idea behind it. You have that schlosavos. It's possible for you to take it over but you have to do something in order to make that happen. Targum Yonasan seems to say that these Rephaim never fought against Moab. They were destroyed in the Mabal and the Rephaim. It's the land of the Rephaim that they had before the Mabul came along. And there's one survivor from the Rephaim, one giant left, and that's Og. It seems to be, the way Targum Anderson seems to say it, it's almost as if there are no giants in the world anymore. They existed before the Mabul, but they don't exist after the Mabul, and as a timeout, that's one of the reasons why you wouldn't see any of their bones, because everything from before the Mabul would have been wiped out in some way, shape, or form. Okay, so maybe that's the idea. They were destroyed in the Mabul, one survivor left. The rest of them perished in the floodwaters. Their land was taken over by Moab many years later. Moab never met the Rephaim. They never met the Amon. They saw bones from them, or some remnants of what they had. I don't know what it was, but they saw something, and they said, oh my gosh, these guys are fearsome. Oh my gosh, these guys are huge. It's a good thing we never saw them before. And they saw Og, and they're like, your mom and dad must be huge. Right? That's what they saw, but they saw nothing else. And this is the land that Ben Israel was told to stay away from. Perish on some wonders about that, etc. He says it's hard to imagine that because the Amon and the Rephaim are mentioned in the wars against the four and five kings and Parshas Lachlacha. But either way, that's what Targum Yonason says. The last thing we're going to say is that of Rav Schwab, Mayan Beis Shoeba, which is a super interesting one. Rav Schwab says that though all these psukim can be understood very, very differently, Sihon and Og took over land that was originally in the, in the hands of the Rephaim and the Amon, both alive, 
both full nations and Sihon and Og both took them over. It was then conquered by the Amori. The land of the Rephaim and the Amin was conquer- conquered by the Amori. And that land of the Amori was conquered by Sihon and Og. And today, meaning in the days that B'nai Esau were coming in, Sihon was the leader and Og was the leader. Before that was the Amori. Before that were the Rephaim, the Anakim, the Amin. And that was that. Those are the ideas behind it. And that's telling you, it's just telling you how big and strong they were and how much, you know, I guess, like how much B'nai Yisrael should be thankful that they were able to beat Sihon and Og. He now explains something so simple, which has bothered me for years. It's in Psukit Zimra on Shabbos. It's in Tehillim, Kuf Lamed Hey, and then Kuf Lamed Vav. The wording is very strange, and you all know it. It's Shehika Goyim Rabim, he killed many nations, the Harig Malachim Atsumim, and killed great kings. L'Sichon Melech Amori, for what he did to Sihon, the king of the Amori, Ula Og Melech and for Og, the king of the Bashan. So here's the question Rav Schwab asks. That's not proper wording. You shouldn't have worded Ule Sihon, Ule Og. If the great kings, the Goyim Rabim and the Melachim Atsumim, are Sihon and Og, then this is just repetitive. And if it's repetitive, you should have said uh, Hu Sihon, or S Sihon, the S Og. Because that's what you're talking about. Who are the Malachim Atsumim? S. Sichon, the S. Og. Liz Sichon, Ule Og, sounds like it's a different battle. It's a different war. You're fighting against the Malachim Atsumim, and then you're fighting against Sichon and Og. What exactly are we referring to over here? More repetition later on. Later on in that parak, it says, Vinosan Artsam Nachla. He made, gave their land as an inheritance. Nachla li Yisrael Amo. A Nachla for Yisrael, his nation. It's again repetitive. Why are we repeating the same words twice? Poetic nature, I guess, but it's strange. Says Rav Schwab, it's not poetic. It's not repeated. It's talking about two separate things. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is looking and it's saying, do you realize what happened? HaKadosh Baruch Hu allowed Sihon and Og to take over this land for you. Hika Goyim Rabim. They were able to kill Goyim Rabim, Baharag Malachim Atzumim, and killed those Malachim Atzumim. And then you took over Sichon Melechamori and Og Melechabashan. That's what it is. It's totally separate things. He gave this land as a Nachla to them. And then it became a Nachla to Yisrael Amot, Yisrael his people. It's totally separate issues. They're not together. And that's why in Hodu Lashem Kitov and Telem Kuflam Edvav, it's totally separate Psukim. It's Shaharag Melacham Gidolim. Kilolam Chaso, Sichon Melachamori, Kilolam Chaso, Og Melachabashan, Kilolam Chaso, because it was separate wars. Two of them were fought by Bnei Yisrael, and one of them was fought by Sichon and Og to kill the other people there, so we never had to worry about them. It's almost like Moshe Rabbeinu was saying to them, Moshe Rabbeinu was looking at them and saying, you have no idea what you went through. You have no idea what I, I didn't put you through. You could have fought against tremendous nations, huge people, a ton of things like this, and instead I made sure that the only people you got to fight were Sichon and Og and nobody else. It would be like, and again, I've used this before, but it's 100% true. You're going to go up to Shemaim after 120 and you said, God, what did you possibly do for me? What did you do to me? I mean, I, 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 I did everything on my own. I was able to take care of this. I was able to take care of that. I just thank you for not getting so involved in messing things up for me. That's what people might think. And the Kaddish Baruch is going to show you. He's going to be like, do you realize what I had to go through to make sure you weren't hit by that car? And you're like, what car? He's like, exactly. 
I had to change the entire traffic pattern of the entire world. And I made one mess up in one red light down on by 59th and Harlem. And because that light was off by one second, which no one can explain, it was just a crazy thing, it changed the traffic pattern throughout the entire Chicagoland, which made sure that you wouldn't be hit by that car when you were looking down in your phone and you weren't paying attention. You're going to be like, oh, well, I guess thank you then. But that's going to be, there's going to be a billion of those because the Kaddish Baruch is in charge of everything. And yes, I don't understand how these things work, how one thing can affect all the other things in the world. But of course the Kaddish Baruch is doing that. And that's what Hashem is saying over here. You have no idea what I did before this to bring you into this land where you're going up to Sikhon and Og and you're like, oh man, we have to fight Sikhon and Og. And Hashem's like, you don't know what you just got rid of. You have no idea what you could have fought against. You could have been against all the Lilliputians. You could have gone against all these crazy people. But it never happened because I took care of that for you. And all you have is Sihon and Og. Remember all those guys that the Moraglim saw dying in Eretz Canaan? Remember all those guys? They were dying and they were like, oh my gosh, there's a land that's Eretz Ochelas Yoshvahi. All of those guys were huge warriors who would have defeated you. I got rid of all of them. They're all gone. You don't have to worry about anything. And the Moraglim were like, oh man, I hate this land. Because <laughs> that's the way we are. We don't notice what a Kaddish Baruch Hu does for us. We know what a Kaddish Baruch Hu doesn't do for us. I didn't win a billion dollars last night. I don't know about anybody here. If anybody did win a billion dollars, you could have sponsored Chalent for tonight, right? But none of us won. So we think like, oh man, a Kaddish Baruch Hu, man, you never do anything for me. I hate you. Right? A Kaddish Baruch Hu is just like, you're right, you're right, you're right. I totally hate you. I totally hate you. Right? And I, I never do anything for you. And you're right. I'm never there for you. Clearly, that's sarcasm. You all got the sarcasm, right? That's the idea. That's the idea behind these Pesukim, guys. That, I think, is what Rav Schwab is trying to say. We'll stop right here. Have a great job.